This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am Claire Watkins, your host for this week, and I am joined by my friend and colleague, John Halloran. Hey, John, how's it going? I'm doing great. It's uh, Yeah, we got a Chicago flavor going on here today, don't no, we? That's right. We're, <laughs> we're under the snow, and we're ready to <laughs> talk about soccer on the phone. Um, so this week, we're primarily going to be talking about what's been going on this international break. Um, even more primarily the She Believes Cup, which as of this recording, um, Canada versus Argentina is happening. So we've seen three games so far. Um, And I do want to start briefly with, we're not going to get into this one too much, but I want to start briefly with the first game um, that happened last Thursday, which was Brazil versus Argentina. And Brazil will probably get into a little bit more with the U.S. focus, but I do want to mention that um, Brazil beat Argentina uh, 4-1 to in that opening game. On a Marta penalty, Dabinia got a goal, uh, Adriana got a goal, and uh, Mariano Laroquette got a goal for Argentina. And then um, Giza got a goal for Brazil at the very end. Um, And I just want to kind of mention what's going on with Argentina in this cup because their situation is a little bit different than everybody else's. They were brought in to uh, take the place of Japan, who pulled out of the cup um, just, I think, what, like a month ago? Not that long ago. Uh, they have been dealing with some COVID issues themselves. Their starting goalkeeper did test positive on, on arrival. So they have been dealing with some of those absences. Um, they're here to get some experience. They're here to build in a way that the other three teams are not because the other three teams are working towards Tokyo. Argentina isn't. Argentina is also without some of their best players because Argentina is dealing with some federation dysfunction. There are some players who are not being called in right now. Um, probably most known to American fans, Estefania Benini is someone who has not played for Argentina in some time, despite being one of their best players in the 2019 World Cup, because she has spoken out about the treatment of the women's team by the Argentinian Federation. Um, John, you said you didn't catch this one, right? Yeah, I don't. I, I, I didn't. And um, but, it, it, you know, it, it reminds me as you're talking there about a point that I think you actually may have made a year or two ago when we were watching CONCACAF qualifying, which is that when we watch CONCACAF qualifying, everybody always gets excited about the underdog who overperforms a little bit and says things like, with a little bit of support, this team could be really good, and then the support never comes. And me and Pardeep talked a little bit about this last week as well, but that's just what it feels like with you know Argentina, that uh, we see these federations that have talent, that overperform. You see their players are very deeply committed and have a lot of heart. And then nobody has their back. And I think that's the sad thing that we just see over and over and over. And it's tough to get excited about what this could be having 
felt that or seen that disappointment over and over again. It definitely feels like for Argentina, and the thing is watching that game, they're still a talented team. They have some players that you think, wow, these players could really do something on the next level. Lorena Benitez is one in particular. She plays for Boca Juniors right now in Argentina, and you just think, man, you know, if she wants to, she could do something really cool if she wanted to play in Europe or even in the States. Um, but you're right in that we have kind of these four teams, right? We have the U.S., and the U.S. is the standard. They win all the games, and they have, you know, some of the best support in the world, despite the fact that they are still fighting for equal treatment, equal pay. You have two teams kind of in transition, but it looks promising, right? With Canada and Brazil mm -hmm. who have dealt with their ups and downs in terms of Federation support, but it seems like maybe they're on the upswing right now. And then you have a team like Argentina, which is still stuck in this rut of they have the talent. They have these players who, when given the opportunity can do very cool things but you don't develop any institutional history if you, I think for Argentina, it was, they hadn't played in 18 months or something. Yeah. And that goes past, that is past COVID protocol. That is a team that is not having programming put together for them. Um, and I think that we've seen some, it's not federations, but the international confederations like CONCACAF has talked about wanting to do more competitions. And I'm sure for Comnable, it's a similar thing, but it, it, it is just really interesting to see flashes and it's a fun team. That was a fun game between Brazil and Argentina. And that's the style of play that you want the women's game to be building up. And it's just not quite there yet. So I just wanted to say my piece about Argentina before we move into some of the heavier hitters. Um, but yeah, I think a team, a team that is still in the beginning stages of seeing that ascension into the next level. But you also, again, you know, <laughs> hope springs eternal. You hope that this tournament maybe is also another good learning experience for them. But you too, you think about like how sad it must be for some of these, these girls who grow up in, in what is a soccer culture, right? These, these kids are imbibed in this from a very young age. And then to just not have, to not be able to see that pathway. And we know that representation is such a huge factor for kids. If they can see themselves represented, they have something to aspire to. And I'm sure that has to be an immense struggle. And, you know, it's funny too, because, you know, we're talking about the Argentina-Brazil game. Think back to the 2019 World Cup and what Marta said, um, you know, when they exited the tournament and how passionate her plea was. And you think about what she must have gone through you know, growing up 20 years ago in Brazil, which is another strong soccer culture that doesn't really support women's soccer for the most part. Um, Brazil in and of itself is a, is a federation that's had, I don't even think challenge is the right word because that kind of lets them off the hook. Like it's some sort of a passive process, you know, actively chosen not to support their women's program, um, especially in, in a country where soccer is such a, part of their national identity and they just ignore half of their population like that um so you know it's again none of this is surprising but i think it will remain eternally sad to think about until something does substantively change yeah i mean this is i'm sure something i've said on this podcast before and it remains true which is the um you know the u.s is not a soccer country but it is a country that passed Title IX legislation in the 70s. It looks for um, commercially viable ways to 
get women involved in some of these some of these activities and that has helped the US become the standard in the world. It's not because we're really good at developing soccer players here. <laughs> yeah. Clearly that's not it. Um though obviously we do a, we do an okay job with the women but um a lot of countries, whether it's European countries or countries like Brazil or Argentina, they have the footballing understanding. It's now, how do you get women involved and what do you have to um, rethink, work back to go forward in order to make that happen? And so this is maybe a good pivot over to USA, Canada, because Canada is another team that doesn't get the programming in the same way like the U.S. does. And this is something that comes up when we talk about that rivalry. And we saw that again this week. Like that is when these two teams play each other, Canada shows up. They want <laughs> yeah. they want so badly to beat that team. But Canada also hadn't played in over a year, um, which, again, I'm not sure I'm advocating for something different than that. I'm not sure the U.S. way of doing it was the best way. But they are a team that – you're, you always have questions, right? Uh, you saw John Herdman go from the women's team to the men's team. Um, you saw Kenneth Heiner Moeller have kind of an up and down career with the women. And you're thinking, is the Federation committed to having a top level coach? Are they committed to really competing with the best teams in the world? And I thought that um, Bev Priestman had a great de- debut. I thought that that yeah. went really, really well. And I thought that at least in terms of mindset and what they want to be doing and in terms of building roster depth, because another big question for Canada has always been, so they have Christine Sinclair, they have the goat, right? But what happens when she's done? Are they developing that next generation? And I think that there were good arguments to very small sample size that that is beginning to happen for Canada. Yeah, I would totally agree that I thought she had a really nice debut as the manager there. Um, I've always felt, like Canada has gotten stuck between the Sinclair generation, which if we go back to like 2012 and everybody remembers that Olympic semifinal when Sinclair was at the top of her game and she had a nice supporting cast around her. I don't think they were at her level, but there were enough pieces there that on their day they could compete with the U S and then, and then we look at the storyline this week, which was Canada hasn't beaten the U S in 20 years. And they seem since 2012 to fall further behind. And it feels like there's like a lost generation between the Sinclair generation and then the Kadisha Buchanan generation. Like there's just too big of a gap that for whatever reason, whether it was uh, development of players or even unification of players, that there is a generation in there that is just missing. And, you know, I know that, you know, somebody who followed the men's team in the U.S. for a long time, there were, there were eras like that. And then you saw that they can really create havoc when that bubble gets too big. There's just too big of a gap in talent between your youngsters and your veterans. And you're right. Like, obviously for Canada, what happens when Sinclair moves on and who is the next generation of talent? And, you know, I think we're seeing that a little bit with Viennes. Um, you know, Bianca St. George, who's a player that we're really familiar with in Chicago. Um, there's a fun, exciting generation of Canadians that are, you know, in that, I guess, 21 to 25 range who could be really good for them. And if Priestman sticks around for a few years and maybe they put together a decent run in the Olympics to get people excited again, 
um, maybe there's an opportunity to kind of push that forward because it benefits the U.S. to have competitive teams pushing them to the next level. And Canada kind of falling off post-2012, I don't think does anybody any good. Yeah, and I will, I'll say this publicly. Because I actually don't have to take this L because I didn't say it publicly to begin with. But um, when you looked at that Canada roster, or when I looked at that Canada roster, especially after they shut some people down in camp. So they shut Sinclair right. down. St. George had an injury. Um, Diana Matheson is again out. And then they also had quite a few players who were not released by their club teams. Ashley Lawrence, Kadisha Buchanan, Jordan Heidema. They did not make it over. I thought this might really be a struggle for Canada. I thought that they might have mm-hmm. a lot of trouble in this first game, um, especially when you think about what the U.S. did to the Netherlands in November. Um, and I was wrong. Like what they what they showed up they showed up with a game plan. There were players on that roster that were more capable than I gave them credit for, and I thought they gave the U.S. a really tough ninety minutes. So I will say that statistically. The the I said this before we started, the eyeball test in this game was maybe a little bit harsher on the U.S. than what we saw statistically. Um, yeah. But in terms of the narrative of the game, it was very close. And so let's switch over to the U.S. Because let's talk about, when we're talking about the Sinclair generation, <laughs> let's talk about Megan Rapino and Carly Lloyd a little bit. Um, yeah. What did you think of the U.S. offense for that first 60 minutes? It, it, yeah, they didn't finish, right? I mean, they, and, you know, it's funny you talk about the creation of chances, but the creation of chances, I don't even really think involved um, Lloyd much. And even, even Rapino, now Rapino had services, which created chances, but in other words, she wasn't on the end of a lot of those opportunities either. It seemed like a lot of the chances in that Canada game were for the midfielders. And, um, you know, Katerina Macario had at least two decent looks. One of them she missed really badly. Another one she lost possession at the top of the box. Um, And it was funny, too, because I wondered, for all of the other things that we're talking about, players that Canada's missing or Canada playing above maybe their station a little bit, um, how much – of the U.S.'s ability to, to break down Canada's defense completely, in other words, getting all the way to the point of a goal, how much of that was Mewis not being there? Or how much of that was Lavelle not getting the start or Press not getting the start? Um, it does seem that there's a bit of a drop-off. And I thought um, Dan Laletta did a little piece uh, for Equalizer after that game where he talked about the pairing of Rapino and Lloyd together might just not work, that there might be – um, you might need to have one of the other players in there to help open things up a little bit more. But then, of course, we saw Rapino score the goal tonight. So, um, and it wasn't like she came in and created a whole bunch, but that that was not an easy finish. It was a volley, and and she put it away and she sealed the game. So, um, it's going to be interesting though, because you know when you talk about Lloyd, the other option is Morgan. Morgan started tonight. I can't remember much that Morgan created. She drew a yellow card at one point. Um, Here, here's what she... I think. Here's what I think. I think that you're, I think a lot of what you said, I agree with wholeheartedly. Um, when you have Carly Lloyd as your center forward, and this is actually also true when you have Alex Morgan as your center forward, but um, the, the point of that, and especially for a Vladko Andonovsky team, we've seen this for him with his club team as well, is there's a certain, and we talk about this with also with Lynn Williams, 
the point of that center forward is sometimes to score goals. Absolutely. But also sometimes it's to get dumped onto the ground a whole lot or (laughs) to, or to be the first point of defense. Flatco is so big on having that full team press. And I thought that Lloyd actually did a decent job of being in and around where play was happening. It just wasn't necessarily that she was very sophisticated on the ball. And so you need somebody else to pick up that slack. And I would say that I'm not sure. I thought Macario did a good job though. I think she still looks a little bit green, I thought Haran did a good job, but she just looks a little bit like she's in preseason right now. And so there's a little bit of timing issues with that. And then the funny thing about Megan Rapino is that it's almost the opposite, which is that she's there to give you service. She's there to give you quality on dead balls, but she's not really a defender. And so right. Crystal Dunn had a lot of work that she had to do both her and, um, both her and Haran had a lot of defense that they had to do. So um, it, it's interesting how I think there were parts of everyone's performances that were positive, but no one was able to completely put it all together until we had the subs come in. Well, it's funny what you say about Lloyd, because that was the dig on Morgan in the 2019 world cup, which people couldn't get out of their head, you know, Oh, she's not scoring goals. And that was, I think there's a similarity or a pretty close similarity between the way that Ellis wanted the nine to play and the way that Endonofsky at least inherited the role of the nine to play in that system, which is, is you're absolutely right is to stand up there, get absolutely trucked from behind over and over and over to win headers, to hold the ball up and lay it off, which Morgan got a lot better at her game changed, Right. So in 2011, 2012, 2013, kind of pre those ankle injuries, her game was pace, get in behind. And then her game morphed, and she became more of a post-up, hold-the-ball-up forward. And Lloyd is – I know people are going to not react well to this, but she's almost a carbon copy of, Moid, uh, of Morgan in that regard, that they're both physically strong players. They can both hold the ball up. They're both good in the air. Um, and they'll both get into the box and get on the end of chances if, if they're there. So I don't see a huge difference between Lloyd and Morgan in that role. And again, I know that probably won't be a popular take, but um, I, I really don't see much, much of a gap between those two in that regard. I think you're absolutely on the money. And I know um, Jeff Kasuf wrote a really long piece during the World Cup about the, uh, the change of Morgan's game. And it was right on the money to everything we had seen uh, building into that tournament and the tournament itself. I only disagree in terms of Morgan and Lloyd in that I think we know what Carly Lloyd's ceiling is. And I think with Morgan, considering the on and off ways she's been able to play over the last year or so, what I saw, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because in the Brazil game, I think that Morgan, her head is is there. The decision-making in terms of <laughs> – yeah. It's in terms of, of yeah. wanting to get that turn or wanting to get on the ball. I just am not sure her legs are 100% doing it yet. Um, and I also think some of the concerns about subs and, and whatnot changes if Alex Morgan is 90 minutes fit. Um, I don't think in either of these games, no, Lim Williams did a full 90 against Canada, but um, we haven't really seen forwards go the, the long haul, which I do think is indicative of where they are fitness wise in terms of their fitness year. Um, so that will change things as well. I like Morgan over Lloyd. I think that Morgan at her best does bring more because I think she can also be that finisher. Um, 
But I, I agree that right now, and this is also maybe Andonovsky looking at the, the fitness that he has right now. And I'd even just mean in terms of touch and saying, so we're just going to run two very similar systems and we're going to see how it works. Um, and I think also, again, I can't emphasize enough how much Andonovsky, um, wants to do full team press. And I think there's just a belief that if they just keep hustling and keep getting the ball back, then they're going to get enough shots that it's not going to matter. They did. They had over 40 crosses, I think in the game against Canada. Um, None of them worked, but they, (laughs) you know, but they are that idea. If you think if you're just producing, there's flaws to this, but that idea that if you are producing chances, they will eventually go in. Um, so the U.S. does win this game um, by a shot from Rose Lavelle. I believe it took a slight deflection. Seeing it in slow-mo is very funny. Julie Ertz is trying very hard to get out of the way of the ball. Um, and so that was a close game. I thought Canada had quite a few chances getting in behind that they had trouble. Yeah. They, they miffed a few of themselves, um, which maybe brings us to – well, first of all, I want to shout out the Canada players that I thought played really well. I mm-hmm. thought Alicia Chapman had a yep. great game. I thought Nichelle Prince looked mm-hmm. like she's in the same form she was during the Challenge Cup and in the Fall Series. Um, I thought Giel was great. She had a great match. She went back to went back to France to get a head to right. get a head start on her quarantine. But she, I understand why they brought her over. They gave her a really good look against uh, against the U.S. Um, Kaylin Sheridan did get injured in this game, um, which is a real shame because I do think her getting the start was significant. Um, We might be seeing the changing of the guard beginning there with Canada, but obviously that's difficult to do when your keeper, I think, pulled a groin. We haven't gotten official confirmation. It looked like a groin injury early on in the game. She's out for the rest of the tournament. Um, But yeah, they also, they also struggled to finish. So we're maybe seeing just some preseason form with everybody. Um, but yeah, so you those know, subs, it, the subs changed the game, essentially. Yeah, it's funny, too, that you, you mentioned what happened with Canada, too, because I think, you know, we were both very positive to open up the show about Canada, but if they go out and get waxed 4-0 by Brazil, you can't really say that that's indicative of where they're at, because in addition to the seven players they didn't have coming into the U.S. match, as you mentioned, Sheridan gets hurt, one of the players went home early, and then I don't think of that original seven St. George was listed. And so now she's an additional injury. So now I think they're missing 10 to 11 players uh, from their original roster. I think it's, it's going to be a little tough for them finishing this, this tournament out just because of how many players they're missing. Chapman, I thought was excellent. I thought her one-on-one defending against um, Williams on that side in particular, but also purse shutting, basically shutting down, uh, both of those players in terms of getting stuff from that side, I thought they were really well organized. And uh, one of the things that Andonovsky talked about after the game was that their midfield setup, the way that they were playing with those dual sixes was very effective as well. Yeah. And I, I think a good, a good pivot into that is that the game plan worked for Canada. They were very stingy in defense. They were stingy in the midfield. It was a very physical game. Cannot say that enough. The ref let a lot go. (laughs) I don't know if it was like the beautiful game that we all know and love, but it definitely was like, you're like, yes, this is a USA Canada match. Um, Subs come on, right? We have Morgan, uh, Morgan Lavelle and press come on. Right. And then that, you know, they only get, they only get the one goal, but that was the, 
the turning point in the match. Um, I have to say, again, talking about the Brazil game in a similar fashion, I think if you're looking at I have no 90-minute fit forwards, I don't think I can argue against what Andonovsky did against Canada versus what he did against Brazil kind of by necessity. What players do you want coming on to change the game, you know? And maybe what players do you trust not to let the scoreline get out of hand until that happens? Um, You know, I think, you know, he's genius because it worked. He looks bad if it doesn't. Um, But I don't know. (laughs) They did eventually get stretched, Canada did. So I don't know. Well, he might have sandbagged a little bit thinking that Brazil was going to be the tougher game. Because if you look at the players that he brings on, so instead um, of Rapino and Lloyd, he starts Morgan and Press, which very well could be and probably should be his, his first choice in those positions. He starts Lavelle instead of Macario, who I would argue is the one who deserves to be in that, in that 11. And also, although she didn't play well, in my opinion, today, I do think Sonnet is ahead of Purse. Now that might have changed because uh, today we'll get was, there. was we'll get there, John. <laughs> today, today was a rough day in that regard, but I do think Sonnet was ahead. So I think that maybe we actually saw in his head what his first choice lineup is, considering the players that were available today and not actually in the opener. Yeah, I think that's fair. So this is let's let's seg into this. So let's talk about what's happening with the U.S. defense. So we have there's a lot. So some things that I think are interesting in terms of lineup choices and how that affects the way the team plays and its structure. Um, the right, the right side of the field, right hand side. Um, they had Mitch purse play against Canada, which I don't think she had a particularly bad game. I think she maybe had what you would call more of a neutralized game. Um, and then against Brazil, they go with Emily Sonnet. Uh, question for you. Why not Tierna Davidson? Or why not Casey Kruger? Why not Casey Kruger, yeah. Right. I, I don't know. I think this goes all the way back to the Jill Ellis era where for whatever reason, you know, those Sonnet was kind of the backup. Um, I guess after career, if you – I mean, that was kind of a weird way that all happened right before the World Cup where Emily Sonnet was the fifth – back and then Krieger became the fifth back um even though she wasn't being called into camps at all before them but uh yeah I don't know I, it, it's tough because look we've all seen Midge Purse at the club level and at the international level not be completely effective as an outside back it is what it is she's she I don't think she's gonna make this roster as a forward so you, you know she's gonna take whatever opportunity she can. This is not a dig against her or even the decision to play her there, but it's clearly not her best position. Uh, she has good moments, usually going forward, which suits her skill set and tends to struggle. I do think against Canada, that was probably one of her better games as an outside back that yeah, we've I seen. So we could, we could nitpick some mistakes, but you know, if you take the totality of times that she's played in a U.S. uniform in the back line, that's probably one of her better appearances. Now, did Emily Sonnet face a tougher attack? Absolutely, right? Brazil's attack is much more dynamic than Canada's. So I don't think it's fair to just take these two games and put those side by side. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know where he's going to go. I would have thought Krieger is the backup at outside back. And like Sonnet, she has that versatility to play inside or outside. But Davidson does too. Um, although I think Davidson's more of a center back 
been right. Out, so like, here's here's crazy. my little here's my little brain nugget on Tierna Davidson, and I don't know if this is right, but I think is possible. Is that I think if you're thinking about both the short term and the long term for the team, I think that you have Becky Sauerbrunn and you have Abby Dahlkemper. Dahlkemper is your hinge from mm-hmm. current to new. I think Tierna Davidson is the next player that's going to step into that system for yes. the long term. Yep. I wonder with Andonovsky if he would rather just groom her as the third center back than get kind of muddy with it in terms of having her play outside. I don't know if that's true, right. but I wonder if it's possible. Um, and also with the idea that you have someone like Crystal Dunn or someone like Mitch Purse who can play forward, we might get a defender-heavy Olympic roster because we have not only versatility like inside and out, but also front line and back line. Um, so I wonder if there, so basically what I'm saying is I wonder if there isn't room for both Emily Sauna and Tierna Davidson on the Olympic roster, but that would only be if what I think could be happening is happening. And I'm not sure that that's the case, but, um, I wonder if that might be it. It leaves you in a dicey situation at outside back though, because I, I just don't think all the times that we've watched Sonnet play outside back there, it, there just always seems to be a couple of moments where she gets caught in the wrong position. She gets it's usually pretty bad. Like it, when she misses, she tends to miss big. And today she missed big, maybe four or five times, depending on how, how, you know, how picky you want to be about it. And man, I just can't, I cannot see going into a world cup with that being your, I mean, I'd be much more comfortable with Krieger. She's experienced. She's, she's probably not going to make any big mistakes. She can play in the middle in a pinch. Um, I don't know what her not being a part of this camp says. I know Andonovsky said it doesn't mean anything, but you know, we're four, four months out from this roster being made. So you're going to read every tea leaf you can. Um, but yeah, I would, I would go with Krieger right now. And the other thing is, and this goes back to the Ellis era. Why does Sonnet go out and have bad performances under Ellis and Andonovsky and still get opportunities? And why does Kruger play really well at the club level, keep getting called in, but not playing. What's I would like to know if there's something happening at practices in training sessions where Kruger is underperforming and Sonnet is overperforming. I would agree that I don't think I know what's going on with that situation. Um, especially because, um, uh, I think it was Annie at the sun times who put a really great piece out about Kruger about how she, she was ready to be done with this team. She thought she was like, if there was a shot for 2020, the postponement of the Olympics has allowed kind of this new guard in. It's not, it's not my time. It was never my time. I am committed to just playing at the club level. Um, Krieger is left off of this roster. Kruger is not actually put on the roster until Alana cook isn't available. Um, but she said that she had a conversation with Andonovsky where he said, no, she's very much in the mix. I don't know exactly right. what that means. Um, but then again, if you have her here and she's not playing over someone like Emily Sonnet, I am, I, man, I, if I'm, if I'm that player, I go, you know, I will take the bonus. I'm super right. happy yes. to take the money on this yes. one. Um, but please just tell me the truth because I, right. I don't understand. Um, and I agree with Sonnet in that. I think there are things that Emily Sonnet does really well. Um, if you look at her statistically, she's a great ball winner. Her um, work rate is very high. I think, well, this is just my thing. I think she should, she is as much a defensive mid prospect as she is an outside back prospect. 
Um, the issue with Emily Sonnet, and this might improve if she does spend some time in that Washington Spirit three back that they say that they want to play, is that I think you don't know when she mentally isn't going to show up. I think you can't predict when that's going to happen. And I'm not sure if there's a level of preparation that gets her over that hurdle. I think that, like you said, some of her issues today was overcommitting, was yeah. was really rushing to something because it seemed like she was very uncomfortable. And it lets her own talent and ability down when she does that. And so the issue with Sonnet, I just really don't think is about skill set because she has it. I think it's that can she be relied on in the biggest game of her life? Right. And right. that's what we still don't know. Well, and you saw that in the World Cup final. When O'Hara got the concussion, they didn't go to Sonnet. Right. Ellis went with Krieger, even though Krieger had not been a part of that team since 2017. Krieger essentially been out of the squad for two years. And at the last moment, Ellis said, I, I, you know, at some point in her internal dialogue said, I'm not going with Sonnet. Whether that's I can't trust Sonnet um, or, or what, but... Um, it's not a great situation. And listen, there, this can all be pretty unfair to Sonnet as well, because if you put a player out of position, and I do think her best position is center back, you can't get mad at them when they don't play well. And this was a very typical thing in the Ellis era of the converted forward as a right back when they couldn't find that depth. And you saw a lot of players get called in and then go through this whole mental kind of collapse even back at the club level because they, they you the psychological confidence of a professional athlete as good as they are and as confident as they might seem it's not that hard to to screw with it and uh, you see some of these players and you really do wonder if if they've kind of had a, had a job done on them mentally so let's switch over to what, what went really well for the U.S. in the game against Brazil. Let's talk about the left side of the field. Let's talk about Kristen Press and, and Crystal yep. Dunn. Uh, they played out of their minds against Brazil. Um, I will go ahead and say that I think that in terms of chemistry, obviously Crystal Dunn and Megan Rapino have played a lot of very important games together. I think what Kristen Press and Crystal Dunn are doing on that left side is very special and should be encouraged. Yeah, I said somewhere, um, this was, I think this was Olympic qualifying, so this was a little over a year ago, that see Kristen Press was ready to just go to that next level. And it's kind of funny because there was always, you know, when we talk about this difference that we just did with defenders between club play and international play, for years and years and years and years, probably from 2013 to the end of 2018, a good five-year span, there was a significant difference between what Kristen Press would do at the club level and what she was doing at the international level. And I think in the fall of 2018, when the U.S. went overseas and played those games in Europe and you started to see Press score those galazos that we had gotten used to watching her score in Chicago, and then she did it a couple of times in the spring of 2019, and though, even though she didn't start in most of the World Cup, obviously in the semifinal, she scores that header, um, which, you know, changes the entire game for the U.S. And then since then, Olympic qualifying, everything, she needs to be a starter. And I know that's going to make for a tough decision for Andonovsky because that means probably Heath or Pino goes to the bench, but it is what it is. And, and she's 
clearly uh, one of those players needs to be in the first 11. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I thought, I mean, I thought that what she and Morgan did together was cool. I think you occasionally had, this happened less and less kind of as the game went on, but you occasionally had um, press drifting centrally as she likes to do. She, that's kind of her thing, right? That goal that she scored. I was like, is this, is that Kristen press goes the one that she did. We talked about this on, when we were talking red stars, uh, that one that she did against the Western New York flash. Yeah. Uh, It's just the same. It's what she does. She, she goes up on the left. She drifts centrally and she's really hard to beat when she takes that shot. Um, But also when she does that, that allows Dunn to have more fluidity in what she's able to do in the attack because right. it's not yep. just kind of making these straight overlapping runs. And then also sometimes even when when press would go directly centrally if they were on a counter or something, Morgan would even go left. So it just felt like it gave them a little bit more variety in what they were doing. Um, and, and again, it didn't entirely work in a cohesive way. I think we've yet to have a goal by by the u.s at all in this tournament that has felt like it was a team goal but i think that that adds to the level of what's happening in terms of movement and i think that that like you said feels more like what the starting 11 of the u.s women's national team should be doing um one thing i do want to get to before we talk about brazil especially when talking about Crystal Dunn having a great game. Kristen Press had a great game. Dunn, I mean, Dunn covered for Sonnet. There was that great block that she made coming all yeah. the way across the field. Um, Lynn Williams spent a lot of the game also covering for Emily Sonnet. Williams looked exhausted when she got subbed off. She was doing a ton of defensive work, and she also had some mental moments in front of goal. I do want to briefly talk about what happened at the nat- for the national anthem mm-hmm. uh, before the game, before the second game began, um, because it is newsworthy. Uh, so what has been happening for the U.S. In, in recent matches is that you have some people kneeling for the anthem and some people standing. The difference in Sunday's game was they all stood. Uh, I will say that I dislike that um, Crystal Dunn and Kristen Press were the only two people made available to press af- to media after the right. game. Um, there has been a call from the fan base that really wants questions asked of white players yep. in this regard. And I think that the media is trying very hard to listen to that. Um, it's difficult to do when you have limited availability. I go back to thinking, I'm not sure Julie Ertz has spoken post-game since the Challenge Cup final. It's been a long time since we've heard from some of these players. And that has to do with some of the media protocols in terms of the pandemic. Um, and that's something that, rest assured, <laughs> that we as media are we are thinking about, we are trying to be collaborative in making that a little bit of a better process um, in the future. But uh, Crystal Dunn was asked about this after the game. And she said that it was a team decision that they never intended to kneel forever. um, And that they wanted the focus to be now placed on actionable steps. Um, I don't really want to project too much. I don't want to, put words in anybody's mouths, but this has been a particularly divisive moment in U.S. Women's National Team history in that you do have this stark visual of some of the divisions in the team. I'm not saying that they didn't exist before, but they have been really brought to light. And so I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts on what does this mean for what the team stands for? What does it mean for their relationship with their federation? 
and and just yeah just kind of your thoughts on it yeah there, there was a i just wanted to uh, say one thing because there was a uh there were three i think three questions in the post game availability uh to crystal dunn today and she did say that they hadn't spoke as a whole team about the decision today so um you know you mentioned kind of how the it, it I, mean, I shouldn't even say it feels this way. It is. If it, the, the black players are taking the brunt of this. They're taking the brunt of it when they kneel, and now they're going to take the brunt of it going the other direction when they make the decision to stand. They are in a lose-lose situation. They are going to um, take heat for whatever they choose to do. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Like We need to be hearing for the white players on this. And I don't know if anybody saw um, – I think it was in the replies maybe – to Julia Poe tweeting during the first game about the, the decision for some to kneel and some to stand, but somebody had cropped one of the ISI photos and you saw in secession, three black players kneeling, three white players standing. And, and somebody had said, how do they not get this? And the, 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 the starkness of that image, you know, when we talk about how powerful a still image can be over a video, like that still image I think really burned into my head at least to take a look at that and say, this image couldn't be clearer um, of, of this division. And I know a lot of the players have talked about the discussions that are going on in camps and that they're watching documentaries and reading books. And there does seem to be some genuine effort. I know Dunn specifically spoke today about doing the work which is something, listen, that's something that a lot of people were saying when, when, the, when you know, the Challenge Cup kneeling had, had begun on a large scale was, this is great, but people still need to put the work in behind. And so, you know, that's good um, that, that they're going to focus on, on doing work to actually make things better. But yeah, it's just a tough, tough situation. I really feel bad for a lot of these players because they're just stuck in a position where they're going to take criticism no matter what they do at this point. And um, it does, I, I don't know, I, I feel very similar to you that it just, something just rubbed me the wrong way about today and, and even the first, the Canada game. Because when, when I saw that image from the Canada anthem, which they didn't televise, which I thought was weird. And then today they, they, they televised it. So, you know, did the TV know that, that some were going to kneel during the Canada game and they chose chose not to broadcast it, but today they knew they were going to stand and they, you know, we, we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. And I don't mean to start a conspiracy theory on that, but um, that image from the game against Canada really stuck with me. And then to follow that up with what happened today, um, it does feel like that you're absolutely right. We as the media need to really try to get some clarification from some of, of the white players on this as well. And, and, see what is going on and where the thought processes are, because I can't imagine being a player in this team right now and, and feeling like maybe you're not being supported. That's just got to be a gut wrenching time because this is my opinion, but there has not been a time in most of our lives where this issue has been more clear cut um, th than the last year. And um, that's got to be really, really tough. And uh, you know, I don't, um, I'm forgetting her name. The, the former Washington spirit player um, was pretty outspoken today too. Uh, McCullough. Oh, Kaya McCullough. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kaya mm -hmm. McCullough um, was, was speaking out today on Twitter a little bit too. And it was interesting to see her thoughts. Yeah. I think, 
you know, I, I, I do, I don't want to go too far on, on this because <laughs> we are two white people giving, giving our thoughts on it. And that that's inherently flawed in its own way. But um, a couple of things, thing number one being that I do think that it's very important to have continued accountabilities, particularly on structures and how and the people in power as much as as when we're talking about players um i think that for me a lot of the criticism that i have right now is for with u.s soccer the things that they you know the questions of well this is a federation that used to have a rule that you couldn't kneel at all did that conversation come back into play um what what do black players feel like they can say? This is a this is a field where we have a lot of on-record and off-record conversations. The on-record conversation is always going to be a little bit different than the off-record one. Um, what are we as media, are we being trustworthy? Can we, are we doing things that make players trust us? Are we serving these players who are maybe being let down by airing all of this stuff publicly? Is it better to give them space to deal with these things in private. I think that that's a lot of the stuff that goes through my head. Um, and I also just want to say that, uh, especially in terms of like what Crystal done, the answer that she gave today, I, I wanna be very mindful of, does it feel like there's other stuff going on there? Yes. Should we listen to Crystal Dunn when she says what she says? And should we not be wasting her time with kind of pushing what we want onto her. Yes. So I think that it's a little bit of accountability is very important. I think pushing players who have other things going on, well, essentially the black players on the team for more other than the initiatives that they want to talk about and are excited about, I think it's counterproductive. And I think it comes from a place of wanting closure where there isn't any. And so yeah. I think that we have to be really mindful of that too. Um, so, yeah, but I also think that this is an ongoing conversation because the U.S. women's national team pretends to stand for a lot of stuff. And we're seeing kind of how limited that is in a lot of ways. And I think that that is going to affect the way people feel about them. Yeah, I think that it's, it's really interesting to see because I do think look at the national team as uh, a mechanism of change to whatever extent that it's, you know, their desire to be or their role to be. Um, I think we've seen that quite a bit. I don't think we would have seen what happened this summer if we didn't have Megan Rapino, um, you know, kneeling in solidarity with Kaepernick back in, I, I can't even remember, I think it was 2017. Yeah. Uh, yeah, following the Olympics. And, and then them coming down very hard on her and then how that reverberated um, into her very outspoken positions repeatedly in the middle of a World Cup, which for her to do what she was doing off the field and on the field is, is quite remarkable. I think she really pushed a lot of people into a position where they were more comfortable to take the steps they did this summer. But you're right. Like, what's next is a big question. Where does this go from here? How do they, because you mentioned this way back at the beginning of the podcast, but their push for equal pay, like this is a group of women who are on the forefront of a lot of different issues, pushing boundaries in places where only a group like them who have the 
the reach that they do and the popularity that they they do can can kind of do that and be leaders the way they are. Yep. So that's probably about as far as <laughs> before we start we before we start talking in circles. But I agree that um, our role going forward is to ask white players about this first and foremost, and just challenge each other ourselves and them to take those next steps and, and actually start towards making the world a better place. Um, I have one final thing I want to talk about in terms of she believes that we haven't gotten to yet is a bit of a pivot, but um, let's talk Brazil briefly. So this is Pia Sundhaga's Brazil in its glory. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure entirely in its glory just yet. I think that it's still a work in progress, but I have to say, I saw some stuff both in the game against Argentina and the game against the U S that makes me think that, they might not be your Olympic gold medal favorite, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose against them in a knockout game. I think that they can really bring it. Yeah. I think number one, we, we should just say this because not enough people are. Dabinia is one of the best players in the world. Like you could, yeah. you can say she's the best player in the world and it's not a crazy statement. Now that might not be true. Maybe she's the fifth best player in the world, but she's in the conversation for best player in the world right now. Um, and that's gone so far under the radar. I don't know if that's because she's playing in America or because she's playing for the Courage, um, you know, domestically. Um, but she's one of the best players in the world. We've seen this. We've seen this probably starting in 2018 at the club level. 2019, she was unbelievable at the club level. And when you have her as a weapon, partnering with Marta um, and, and Ludmilla, who was terrific, I thought, today, right? Um, Ludmilla took, took, took Becky Sauerbrunn um, a couple of times 1v1, beat her the one time, although Sauerbrunn did a really nice job of forcing her into a wide position where her shot wasn't dangerous. Um, but that was also the player that Dunn closed down on that terrific run. Like their, Brazil's front line is terrific, and you partner that with enough organization in the back and – boy, are they going to be tough to beat on any day. And they can beat the U.S. on any day. Yeah, I, I did think it was kind of funny because, yes, we, we talked about some of the defensive stuff for the U.S., but I'm also a little bit like, well, you try to play Brazil. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't score, so I guess right. that worked pretty well. Um, yeah, I thought that the U.S. did a good job at the in the beginning of the game. Of It seemed like they were willing to collapse in a little bit, their defensive shape, in order to – get Brazil just to sort of take some shots on the outside of the box. Mm -hmm. They were just yep. really trying to box them out. Um, and the, when that failed, it was actually when they were losing one V one battles, which is what Brazil is so good at. So I thought that the structure for the U S against them was a good idea. I just think that sometimes when you're talking about individual um, comparisons of defender versus um, attacker, the U S just kind of lost some of those battles sometimes. And then what they had to do was scramble and recover. And they did a decent job of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the concept of a Sundhaga-led Brazil is still there. Um, I think that also, again, you have a player like Dabinia who plays for the Courage. She understands a full-team press. She understands defending from an attacking position, and I think that that kind of mindset um, – you saw that from Marta, too. Um, when you have team leaders taking that on, I think it can really set the tone for the rest of the team. Um and I am really, really interested in what Brazil Canada is going to look like. Yeah, I mean, we saw what Dabinia torched Dahlkemper to start that that original play that we've talked about several times. 
Um, like I mentioned, the Nilla a couple of times did really well to get in behind. Um, and you know, the other thing, this will be completely forgotten because it ended up being a two nothing game, but in the 83rd minute, Dabinia got inside of Sonnet on that header and it, they were like four yards, three yards from goal and Dabinia missed the header, but that would have been an equalizer because the game was one zero at that point. And, um, this, this was a game that was very, very close to being a tie. Uh, and not a 2-0 win. So, uh, yeah, like you're saying, I just think as soon as Pia was hired, I think people got a little excited about that idea. And, you know, this is probably too stereotypical, but the idea of a coach like Sundhaga, who we know can bunker in, like she did when she was the coach of Sweden against the U.S. and the Olympics, and then you add a little bit of that with the counterattack. And basically playing like Sweden did, in the 2016 Olympics, but now doing it with better counterattackers. That's an exciting formula. That's exciting to watch. Yeah. And I think defense, I do think defensively, if you think about the two goals that the U S did score, um, there was one where Kristen press drags in centrally individual effort, nails the shot, beautiful goal from, from one of the, if not the best strikers in the world. Um, the second goal, uh, the U S got end line and got across in and, Rapino was right there. And that was actually a sick little finish from Megan Rapino. I think she hit it yeah. with like the inside of her foot. Um, but there, I don't think you would say huge defensive breakdowns on either of those. Uh, they just got beat. And so I think that that is promising. I mean, I think you, you go back to God 2017, that four, three game that the U S won in the tournament right. of nations and, and how Brazil had the ability to just completely collapse. And I don't think that's what we saw. Um, and I think that also, again, you just have to take with a grain of salt. They were playing the U.S. So that's what they looked like against the best team in the world. And I think that that has to be a really good place for them to start as they sort of start fine-tuning going into uh, going into the Olympics. And they looked a lot better than the 2019 World Cup, I'd say, overall. Yeah. I know this is one game, but you, you can see that there's there's a greater potential for this team in – the 2021 Olympics than there was in the 2019 world cup. And they're also a team that maybe benefited a little bit from the extra year to start melding some things, um, to give, to give Pia a little bit of extra time, time with the team before they do go into the tournament. Okay. So we have talked for a very long time about this, uh, real quick. I do want to shout out two other friendlies that happened this week. Uh, primarily Mexico's three to one victory over Costa Rica that they played at Estadio Azteca. It's the first time the team has played a game there in 14 years. And it was their new manager, Monica Vergara's debut. Um, I watched that game. I thought that you had to maybe take competition into account. Um, but I just think it's good vibes for Mexico right now, which is what they really desperately needed. They were in trouble of maybe losing, losing faith in the process a little bit in terms of um, first team results. I will also say with Mexico, and we know this about them, their U17 and their U20 teams have been really class the last couple of years. And their goal, like their goal scorers, some of their best players in that game were 19, 20, 22, 23. They are young. And if they can start linking some results together, they are going to be very exciting come World Cup qualifying for 2023. So I feel really good about Mexico. And then France had a pretty standard win over Switzerland, though they're still dealing with some of their drama. Amandine Henri did not play in that game. It's just, it's just you know, it kind of is what it is. But France, France looked good against Switzerland. Um, 
So those were just the other two international break uh, games I wanted to highlight. This has been a very long first segment of the Equalizer podcast. We'll be back for a short little conversation talking NWSL and tennis, question mark. So come back in a bit. All right, welcome to segment two of the Equalizer podcast. Just a quick reminder here at the very beginning of this segment to rate and review the podcast on whatever streaming service you prefer. It helps us out a lot. It helps people find us. Give us a five-star rating and give a review if you feel so inclined. So now we're going to talk NWSL because there was some NWSL news this week, even though they still are still in the uh, early stages of preseason. The big piece of news Uh, that came out of Washington this week is that the Washington spirit um, onboarded a, an investor group of a lot of different notable people this week. Um, Some of the bigger names, more than 30, they say more than 30 distinguished individuals, uh, big names that people might recognize Chelsea Clinton, Jenna Bush Hager, uh, Brianna Scurry, uh, former Olympic gymnast Dominique Dawes, uh, and a wide variety of other people who are known in the D.C. area. It's a very Washington, D.C. group. Um, another example of this idea of micro-investors, uh, of bringing on people who have income and some people who also have some names that you would like to see attached to your team. They pool together money and they collectively take an ownership percentage. Uh, what did you think of the Washington news, John? I, you know, it's funny because I thought of this when this first happened with Angel City, but I know you've commented about this a few times on Twitter. This idea of what, you know, we're, I guess you're calling, we're calling micro-investors, this idea of buying into a team where you're not necessarily, I'm sure there's some sort of ownership, you know, 1%, 2%, a share, however they're doing it legally, but... The idea of not bringing in somebody who's going to take half the ownership or the majority ownership, where you can start to raise bits of capital here and there, you know, and and, and I don't really know what amounts these are. Are they raising, you know, 10,000, 50,000? But the idea that these owners have now figured out, I don't know why this was a secret before, but uh, Angel City, for whatever reason, broke the dam on this. But this idea of bringing some, some more capital into the smaller teams, especially. Um, to just provide a better atmosphere for the players to raise salaries. You know, we've talked a lot about the allocation money increasing. We've seen the first two contracts being offered to U.S. players through their clubs and not through the Federation, which is a huge step forward, I think, for creating a more independent league. So all of this is good, and I know you've had a lot of strong thoughts too, but just the name recognition um, – whether that's, you know, with the spirit, you know, Dominique Dawes or Brianna Scurry or, or the, you know, the tennis names uh, that I know you've written about, the idea that we're bringing other communities into our community, that there's some cross-promotion, some cross-interest. I know, um, you know, Osaka has been really great about wearing her courage gear, it, hat, um, jersey during warm-ups, during press conferences, all of that stuff. I think is great for the long-term future of the league. And it has felt like to me that in the last three months, six months that we have really crossed some boundary that I, I guess I never really thought was going to happen or maybe never thought it was going to happen soon. And we see 
Um, even on the media side of it, our friend Sandra working for CBS and, and all the stuff that Meg Linehan's done with The Athletic and some of these bigger outlets now more regularly covering it in Chicago. The fact that Sun-Times is now actually covering the Red Stars for the first time, for the first time ever. In all the years that, that we've had a, an NWSL team in this market, the first time ever that we have the local paper actually covering the team, the, the difference in the Kansas City ownership what it's going to be this year than, than it was their last year. There is a big wave of change coming and it's very positive, but it is, it, it doesn't represent proportionally the changes that we've seen the first, I guess, eight years of the NWSL. This is a, uh, I, I don't want to be uh, melodramatic, but it does feel like this is a, a much bigger deal than those improvements have been in the past. Right. Like I, I, the one, the one that I, I went back to was I, I used on Twitter, I used the term watershed moment this week. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, we've heard that before. And I was trying to think like, what else have we called watershed moments? And I think the one that I remember is the 2018 final in Portland was sold out. And so we called that a watershed moment. And I was like, we're really just on a different level at this point. Um, I think there are a lot of positives going back to just kind of the concept of having a lot of different investors. I think we know this in Chicago and I think this has been true in Washington as well. And we actually saw a different compromise in Tacoma Um, independent owners who know the space really well and feel very strongly that they want to be part of the stewardship of the team going forward. Um, So not really always being receptive to a full sale of, you know, 60, 70%. Right. Um, but they also need to raise capital because ind- independent owners, unless you're a billionaire, you know, that it starts weighing on you in terms of what you can spend on the team. And so this presents something of a solution to that problem, which is that if you have a lot of much smaller level ownership, the one person who is used to kind of steering that ship, while they're going to be taking input, I'm sure that's going to be a free flowing conversation they still get to be a big part of that. And I think that that was really valuable to Washington. We'll see what happens in Chicago. Um, And then in Tacoma, they just did a full on sale while keeping Bill Predmore at the head of the team. Um, Predmore is still obviously the main person taking charge there, but they had a rebrand. They, you know, they had a lot of stuff happen that you had got the feeling of this is a very different team than the one that it was before Olympic Lyon bought it. Um, I think the downsides of this sort of thing are how much do you dilute a team before it's worth anything? Um, What happens when you do have conflicting thoughts, conflicting opinions? What happens when you have people want to pull out maybe because they don't have a huge stake in this? Um, So that's where it gets, it gets complicated, but I think that a lot of these teams have decided that that's an issue for future them. Um, And for now they're just going to kind of take what's been made available to them. I also think, um, diversifying your ownership group, whether it's in demographic or simply just in people is good. Um, And we also saw uh, what having one person in charge of a team in terms of Utah can do in a team's downfall. So having more people involved, I don't think is necessarily bad. You just definitely have to make sure that you are focused in what you want to do and don't start moving in too many directions. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about, specifically Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka because they played each other in the Australian Open this week. They played each other in the semifinal. They were absolutely the two highest profile players left at that point, but also even when the tournament began. And 
you talk about media being excited about NWSL, the way that not only tennis media was asking them about their NWSL teams, Mm -hmm. but you had these larger soccer, like, like bleacher report posted about it multiple times throughout the week. And I'm like, my God, I can't imagine the last time (laughs) bleacher report posted about just the, not the U S the NWSL, um, in, in a week like that. And so I feel I feel like there is nothing like this that has ever happened with NWSL before, which is very exciting and a little bit scary because I don't think we know exactly what this turns into in a year, in two years. It's going to be a lot of change. um, And I think a lot of it will be positive, but I think you might also have some longtime fans of this league blink a little bit and just be like, what happened? (laughs) How did we get here? Yeah, no, I, I felt that way too. And it, it is it is a little scary, even on the media side of it, because, um, you know, we've all carved out our little fiefdoms, uh, whether that's on a team level or on a league level. And now you've got bigger media coming in and that changes the dynamic for good and bad. It's good that these things are being promoted. You mentioned Annie's work in Chicago. It's great that that's getting out to a larger audience. Um, but anybody who's been on some of these Zoom calls recently, or I shouldn't say recently, over the past year <laughs> for all of these teams, you're also seeing people who don't really have a good understanding, a good grasp on the league or what's happening. And so that not only leads to some awkward moments and questions, but you know, we've, it's been difficult for NWSL media, I think in particular, to build up a level of respect with front offices, with owners, with players, because most of us, this is a, a second job this, or even just a hobby. And, you know, now that th- these other bigger media entities are coming in, it's going to change the coverage. Uh, and again, for some ways better, for some ways worse. Uh, and that might end up pushing some of us out of the picture. And if that happens, it happens. That's, you know, things change. But some of us have a really intimate knowledge of the league and the players and the coaches and styles and the history. And you're just not going to get that flavor from larger entities because they just, and listen, if, if you are familiar at all with the media landscape, you know, anybody listening to this, the transient nature of, of reporting and uh, especially how young reporters are now because there just aren't old reporters and people transition in and out of markets. And um, one, one person that's kind of funny because they're in the Chicago market, Maddie Lee, who was originally a soccer reporter covering the Royals, which is how most of us got to know her. And now she's in Chicago covering the Cubs. And um, these reporters, we've seen this in Houston where Houston used to have regular coverage and then the reporter just left. And uh, we've seen that in Portland with the Oregonian some of these outlets, some of these reporters are, are going to be in and out of markets pretty quickly. And so they're not maybe going to have that depth of coverage. Um, but again, there are positives because it's going to bring it to a larger market as well. And so you're right. I think even, even on my part, you know, uh, if I'm being honest, there are moments where you're like, well, wait, where's my place in all of this? I think you're going to feel the same with the, the fan bases, the supporter groups, smaller owners, front offices. There's going to be a reverberation of this. Yeah, it's like it's uh, it's necessary. It's moving very quickly. Um, I would say that I don't think that's necessarily bad because I don't know how much you always talk about time. 
a league like the NFL has had 100 years to do this and the NWSL is moving into year nine. I think that some exponential growth is okay just based on how long sports have existed in the world. Um, And I also think that it's going to be necessary to keep up with what is happening in the rest of the world. But yeah, I think that we talk about having hard conversations. I think that it's going to be a series of, well, actually to your point, it might be a series of hard conversations or if coverage really changes and it mostly becomes a lot of talking to teams, getting things from teams and kind of reporting that as is by people who know the space a little bit less, we might stop having hard conversations. Um, And I think that it is just kind of an ebb and a flow. And I think that that is going to be an interesting thing for the two of us, especially because we're in sort of a, in this specific middle gray area. to kind of see what that looks like. So I just think it's going to be an interesting year. Um, I'm excited. And uh, the funny thing for me is the NWSL is in preseason, right? They just got started. Um, It's wild to me that the U S had their, it was their highest. She believes fifth highest non world cup viewership on a Thursday night for FS1 Mm -hmm. for the, she believes cup. Yeah. Uh, we have investors coming in after the league hasn't played a game in like five months and they only got like 15 games between them in 2020. Um, there's some stuff happening here that actually kind of like defies common sense in a way that I don't know if (laughs) what's going on. (laughs) I don't think any of us do because you're, and I've said this publicly, I've said this on Twitter, like for the league to do what it did this year was didn't match what what they produced in terms of a product did not match the end result of what they got out of it in terms of promotion and um fanfare and and followers and viewership and you're you're absolutely right and somebody i saw somebody tweet that that even though numbers in men's sports over the past year have been down in women's sports are actually up and i noticed that it took me after the game today a lot longer than normal to just catch up on my Twitter feed because everybody was watching the game today. And I think if this was, if everything was normal, if everybody was in their normal routines, I'm not sure we would have seen that because there are a lot of times where the U S is playing and a lot of people aren't paying attention. And right now it seems like everybody is paying attention and, uh, it's fun and scary and exciting and, and all of this all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely say agree with the social media part of it where um, I, I even remember at like the end of 2019 or beginning of 2020, maybe she believes 2020. I had the thought of just like, man, nobody, nobody engages with anybody online the way people engage with this team um, compared to doing mostly just NWSL coverage. And then over this year you started to see the engagement was was reaching like inching towards that U S level with just the league. Um, And yeah, we have seen, there have, have, have been um, declining numbers in in men's leagues. And I think that it's up to them to figure out why that's happening. But um, in terms of what people want, what makes them feel good, what they want to support, what they want to get into. I think that that is trending in a very particular way. And I think that that is, like you said, trend. The thing about trends is sometimes they go up and sometimes they go down. But I don't know. I think that there's a lot of room to play with here. Um, But we have talked about it long enough. 
<laughs> nice long podcast between me and my buddy John. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, with more Equalizer coverage. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.